with that, let's pray. We'll look at today's text and we'll get going. So Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, we uh, pray, Lord, as we um, continue our journey through this, this first letter of Peter, Lord, we ask that you would help us. I thank you for the Apostle Peter, his life, his zeal, his intensity, his humility. Lord, I just thank you that we are able to see how he matured in his walk with you over the years through the Gospels and his letters and his life and his death. And So, Father, as we come to this passage, Lord, it's a difficult passage, not to understand, but to apply. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us here, including myself, that you would give us open hearts to hear what you have to say. May we um, put our guard down. May we listen to you. Lord, help us to trust you and your word and what you've um, revealed to us. Lord, help me as I teach this, that you give me clarity of thought and speech. And Father, may my words be your words. And anything that's not of you, Lord, may just be forgotten from our memory. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would help us now. May your word come alive. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So I read two short, pa- two short verses. For those of you that are sharp and you've been paying attention, you'll say, wait, that we already did these verses. We did them last week. Ben did them, um, which is true. For the last few weeks, and it's intensified this last week, I've been in this horrible, this yo-yo. What, what am I going to cover? Um, I thought initially I would cover verses 3 through 17, and then I thought I, or 13 through 17, excuse me. Then I thought I would do 13 through 25, and then I changed my mind. I said, well, I'll just do 13 through 17, and then I'll, no, then I'll do 13 through 25. This went all the way up till literally when I started the last message. Um, I ended up doing the whole thing. And there's a, a, a tension in how to handle. There's sort of, it's, it's sort of like twine that's been in, balled up in a big knot. And how do I unravel it to, to, to teach us what it's, be, what, what it's saying? There's so much in here that's critically important. The first two verses, which uh, Ben last week said he believes are are the heart of First Peter, that this is sort of the um, at the very crux of the book. Beyond Before this point, Peter has been making his case doctrinally, sharing with us uh, the, the truth of who we are in Christ, the great doctrine of, of, uh, of coming to salvation, where we stand before God in Christ. And this seems to be a tipping point. Now, because of all of that, there's certain... Um, uh, behaviors that are either discouraged or encouraged. And ver- I have to, see my notes are of absolutely no purpose today, so I have to. I'm, I'm stuck with my brain. Um, um, <laughs> verses eleven through twelve begin with this sort of. There's one instructed instruction to abstain from something, and then the second, to keep your behavior excellent. If you fast forward all the way to chapter 3, verse 8, which I sort of think is the, um, this, the ending of, of this particular section, he says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called to the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Keep going down to verse 15. And he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense toward everyone who asks you 
to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So the beginning and the end sort of talk about this this behavior of ours that we as followers of Christ are to exhibit. That it's critical, it's important, it means something of significance. Peter cares for this uh, in a major way. The, the so what, last night when I'm trying to sleep before Sundays, I always kind of toss and turn mentally and going, what is the whole point of this passage? What What's the so what? What does this matter to those who are Christians or even more so to those who are visiting who haven't placed their faith in Christ? What's the purpose of this passage? And in wrestling through that question is sort of the reason that I ended up doing the the, the whole passage because I fear that in teaching any one of the three segments that we're going to cover today may, if I'm not careful, or if you mishear what I'm saying, you could conclude that our works sort of determine our relationship with Christ, that we're trying to earn our salvation, and that's not the case at all. But because of our relationship with Christ, because of our our standing with Him through grace, we behave a certain way in response to that, not to earn it. And so if we look at verse 15, sort of looking at some mound peaks of the, the so what, why is this important? You'll notice that verse 15, Peter writes, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence. It's literally a muzzle for an animal that you would muzzle the ignorance of foolish men. So right off the bat, what we're going to look at today, what I want us to keep in the forefront of our brain is that God cares very much about this. People are always searching, what's the will of God in my life? We know based on the word of God that today's passage, the thing I'm going to teach on, it very clearly is the word of God. It says, for such is the will of God that by doing right your behavior, these 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 relationships, these environments that we find ourselves in, that by living the way that God encourages us to live, it's going to have an impact on those who don't know Christ as Savior. In this first case, it's going to silence them. It's going to muzzle their ignorance and their foolishness. In verse 19, we see the second part. For this finds favor. Favor, I... The, the word that is there is grace. It says, for this finds grace, that for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And so he's going to talk about this attitude, and he's, there's going to be an instruction from God how we're to, to live our lives in a certain way. And in verse 19, the reason he says it's so important is that, If we respond how God tells us to respond or encourages us to respond in this passage, as we respond that way, the God's grace bubbles up to the surface in our lives and it's put on display so that the the world that doesn't know Christ can see the gospel. And then finally, the the, the last point we're going to look at is the very end of verse 24, the so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This exchange of life. This, we look at what Christ did, and he did it to free us from the bondage of sin, that sin no longer has our pink slip. We've been set free to live for righteousness' sake. All right, well, I've given the, the sort of the outline, and the, the, the part that I'm easing into has nothing to do with my understanding. I understand what this text says clearly. The the, the problem is, is I know my heart as a red-blooded American that is stubborn, is independent. I mean, we all live in Valley Center. Valley Center attracts a sort of, how do I say this gracefully? A stubborn people that likes to be independent and in control. 
this whole section is going to speak on an issue that we as Christian Americans struggle with. We've turned it into a bad word. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So the first, the, the, if there was one word that describes the next few weeks, or ne- at least next week for sure, I'll see who I offended this week because they're not going to come back next week to hear the, is submit. So submit to the government. The next, the next verse 18, servants be submissive to your employers or your masters. Verse one of chapter three, in three through one through seven of chapter three is the idea of of your marriage relationships. That there's this idea of submitting within your relationships. I got everybody worried, and trust me, I know. I, I, I how, how do I handle this? See, in my own heart, I, I want to sort of push back. I loved one commentator I read this week that as he entered into this section, he said, you know, most pastors of, in America will turn this whole section into a sermon arguing against what the Bible says to justify their position. And I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to ask that you would just take off your gloves, set them down, take a deep breath, and just pretend for a second that this is important to God and he's giving us instruction that's good for us, even if it cuts against everything within us. And so with that, I'm going to begin. So we see, keep your... Well, I'm going to begin, but I'll go back up to verse 11. I'll (laughs) ease in. So he starts with beloved. This is uh, that you're loved by God, that that you're children of God. He's laid out everything. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. I I love the writing of the New Testament. The apostles, when they want to get their point across, there's no, it's, I don't want to say it's a gentle command, but the way they go about it is they go about it from the perspective of they've been where we are. They've struggled as we are. And he says, I urge you, I think of Paul in Romans 12. Brethren, by the mercies of God, I urge you. This is important. And he says, I urge you as aliens, strangers, or sojourners. However, in this world, if you have followed Christ, you are going to be separate from this world. The fact that you believe that Jesus came to this earth as God that he was crucified as the scriptures foretold for payment of your sin, that he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, and that by trusting in him, you have freedom, you have life, you have forgiveness of your sin. That cuts against everything our culture says. And if you live this out in your life, as the Bible says we should, as followers of Christ, you are distinct from the culture around you. And in the first part, he gives a negative, something to avoid. He says, to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. So there's the don't do this command. And I don't know about you, but I say that first verse, and that really encourages me. Because who's he writing to? Christians or non-Christians? Christians. I always hate it when the speaker gives a rhetorical question and you start to think, are we supposed to really answer? Like, so I tried to answer really quick so you guys have to go through that. You're welcome. And uh, he's, he says, abstain from these lusts. And I love that because as a Christian, I think, oh man, I'm not like broken or maybe I didn't do something wrong because as a Christian, like I, man, I struggle. There are things within me that I desire that I know are bad and I, it's like this battle to fight against him. And why do we fight against him? We're great justifiers to make excuses. And look at the image. These fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, that there is this battle within you. When you became a Christian, you now have the Spirit of God within you, yet your flesh still resides. When the Spirit wasn't there, there was no battle. You were just in the flesh. No conflict. Maybe the Spirit would convict you, but, but within you, you were just sinful. But now we have our sin nature with this new nature and there is this war 
And the lust, this desire of the flesh is, is waging this war against the spirit trying to lay us off course. And I don't know if you were like me, but before I was a Christian, I said, I don't want to become a Christian because I like having fun. Well, many years after becoming a Christian, I realized I didn't know how to have fun before I was a Christian. I've had more fun as a Christian. I can't tell you, waking up and having clear thoughts about the night before, like I don't wake up with like a bundle of receipts, like what did I do last night? Like that doesn't happen anymore. Like I'm having so much more fun as a follower of Christ that God's plan is the good plan for us. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to have joy. Then he says in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That verse is very confusing in the New American Standard. It doesn't really read well because you're like, what is it saying? The, The bottom line of what this verse is saying is that as you live for Jesus, you keep your deeds excellent. As you go about doing this, the world is going to slander you. They're going to slander you as evildoers. But as they're doing this over time, eventually they're going to see that something is different about you. And ultimately, the day of visitation, when Christ comes, their perception of Christ, because of how you live, will be adjusted. And then at the day of Christ's return, there will be people, because of your behavior, because of your living out the gospel, the gospel's on display and people will bring God glory. There's a lot of, what does this mean? Do they become Christians? I don't know. And then Peter begins to list very practical behaviors that explain, keep your behavior excellent. So behavior number one, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to a, a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by, by him for the punishment of evil, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. This is very similar. This, this sounds very much like Romans 13.1, which says every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So he begins with the first word I want to deal with is this word submit. Everybody kind of cringes like this. Oh, I don't want to hear this word. Submit in the Greek is hupostasso. I'm not looking at it, or maybe I am right here. Yeah, hupostasso. And it is, it comes with it, the idea of a military term for, for rank or structure. Um, Kittle, who's a, a Greek grammarian, says this word means to appoint, to order, with such nuances as to arrange, to determine, to set in place, to establish, and uh, to fix one, for oneself. So the idea that you are willingly placing yourself within this structure, and in this case, it's the human government, that, that God has said there is, no government except the, or, there is no government except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So our first way we sort of um, try to push back is to say, well, Peter and Paul had great human governments. Like, it's easy for them to write this. And I'm not going to reply sarcastically to you if that's what you think, but I would encourage you to do some history studying, and you would find a closer resemblance to the, the, the government that they were under was closer to ISIS in Mosul, Iraq. That was sort of what they were living under. The the guys who wrote the Bible in the New Testament following Christ, with the exception of John, they all gave their lives. Or I should say they were executed for their faith. Nero was the emperor at the time. He was horrible, horrible. He, He destroyed Rome. He destroyed Jerusalem. He... It's probably easier to discuss who did he not kill versus discussing who did he kill. He was a ruthless, crazy, evil, wicked man that had all kinds of power so that he could do whatever he wanted. And yet, Peter says, we're to subject ourselves as followers of Christ to this institution. 
verse 13, to every institution, whether as a king, as one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do right. So when we look at submitting ourselves to the government, the very first sort of thing, we're, we're doing this not because it's fun, not because the government is perfect, because there is no perfect government. We do it for the Lord's sake. Those who follow Christ, we're saying, Lord, your word tells us that you've, you've instituted the authorities over us. And so I'm going to submit myself to you in doing this. And already I can hear some of you, and I, I'm only going to say this just to just kind of move on so we can get our thoughts. But aren't there times where sort of insurrection is encouraged in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Anywhere. You know, there's four times that I've seen that there was civil disobedience in the Scriptures. I kind of thought it was way more. Uh, but the consensus of the four times were followers of God rebelled against the authorities that are over them. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17. It's referred to in Hebrews 11, verse 23. This is when Pharaoh ordered that all of the, uh, the male babies would be executed. And what did the midwives do? They rebelled against the order. They said, there's no way we are going to protect human life. They put Moses in, in the river. You, we see how Moses' life is spared. The next time we see it is in Daniel chapter 3, Meshach. I'm blanking. I was going to do it. I didn't do it the last time. I probably shouldn't have done this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I started with the wrong person. That's where it all, like, I need to start with the right person. And these three guys, they were under uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He built this huge statue. And everybody was to bow and to worship. And these guys said, no, we're not going to bow and worship, which they didn't do. They were seen. And then what happened? They were basically sent to their execution for civil disobedience. And God spared them. Later, the same chapter, Daniel, who's a great example of what Peter's trying to tell us to do. He lives his life for God. He's now about 80 years old. Everybody who knew him, they knew that he was different. He was a sojourner. He was, he was a Jew in captivity. Yet the guy walked with God in a way that ever, just made them angry. And so as they were trying to get him executed, the only way they thought that they could get him to break the law was to create a law that said he couldn't follow his God in praying to his God. And so they wrote the order, and there Daniel opens his windows, he prays. Ultimately, he's thrown to the lion's den. Again, God spared his life and protected him. Finally, we see in Acts chapter 4, Peter, the author of Peter. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Peter is now at the helm of the early church. He heals a guy. Ultimately, he's arrested for healing this guy in Jesus' name. He's brought before the authorities. The authorities, as they're bringing him to trial, it's sort of funny. They say, well, we're going to just make him stop saying the name of Jesus. And Peter stands up before them and says, you judge for yourselves but I'm not going to stop proclaiming the name Jesus. So you do whatever you have to do, but as far as the name of Christ, I'm going to proclaim the good news. And so in all of these cases, there are very few, and, and the point of, of disobedience responded in sort of the sparing of lives. I think of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you... If you want a great book to read, Google Diedrich Bonhoeffer. It's probably the top Amazon one. It's a blue cover. It shares about this pacifist pastor who was in Germany that as Hitler was rising to power and his, his pacifism was ultimately challenged to the point that as he saw what Hitler was doing to the Jews, he recognized that if he did not respond, he would be culpable for the actions. And so he as a pacifist pastor formed a coalition and said, I'm willing to assassinate Hitler. He was never successful. He tried three times. He was ultimately arrested and he ultimately was executed. And all of these cases when there's rebellion against the government, don't think that, oh, just because you rebel against the government that there's not going to be consequences. All of them, there were consequences. Maybe not in Moses' case, but in the other case, there were consequences. And so we submit to the authorities, even though not perfect, because we recognize 
that God says he's instituted the authorities over us. And, and really, in all honesty, the authorities over us are a huge blessing. Even in our, I mean, I don't want to say even in our country, you start listening to people. Guys, travel the world. Go to other countries. We are so blessed to live in the country that we live in today, presently. Without the government, even bad governments, that means anarchy. Without, without structure, without what they're supposed to do, I do believe that God will give an account. Or nations will be judged by God. But I'm getting astray. What I want us to do is to read this text for what it says that we are to submit to the authorities that have been placed over us. He says, submit verse, or I'm sorry, verse 15. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. See, during that day, they, there was great persecution against the church. One of the things that non-believers were saying is that the Christians weren't subjecting themselves to the government. They served this other king, this king named Jesus. And so that was a reason for them to be arrested, tried, persecuted, all sorts of things. And so they said, no, we want to keep, keep following, keep subjecting yourselves. Live in a way, because as you live, they'll be silenced and the gospel will radiate out. This week in wrestling with this passage, it was perfect. I'm like, what's an illustration? What's an illustration? And uh, I left the church. I was on Valley Center Road. I came to Lilac. I'm stopped at Lilac, and I see this little blue car, like a Ford Taurus or Ford something. And I see it, and I saw the car, and I like, my eye starts twitching, and I just like don't want to make eye contact. There's a little round sticker on it, and you guys are going, what's the deal with this car? It's the fire inspector. It's the guy I have to deal with. Every year, he'll call me. I ignore his calls for a couple times. I go, well, uh, leave a message and I'll get back to you. And then I'll call him and I'm like, hey, whatever. What, what? I forget his name. He's like, oh, yeah, we need to do the inspection. It's like, oh, life's really crazy. Can, how about, how's like next month work for you? He's like, we can do it the next month. You just give me a date. And then normally I have like one or two like rechanging the Like I really, it's just not fun. But we as a church, we submit ourselves to the government. And the guy will come through here, and I walk through really nice. And he'll tell me things that I kind of, uh, you know, I think are foolish. But I say, well, if you'll notice when you leave the church, there's a sign above the door that says, max occupancy of this building is like 7,102 people. It's a way exaggeration. And he's like, you need to get a sign up there. I'm like, you really need us to have a sign that we need? There's no more than like, I, I forget what it is, like 300 people or something. I'm like, we don't ever have three. And I'm like, but I'll be, yes, sir, I'll do it. I'll, be, I'll do it for you. We go through, we do all the stuff. If you go into another thing I submitted to, was on the, on the microwave. There's a little note that says, uh, by order of the fire chief, no greasy fumes will be used in the cooking on the stove. And I look, I'm like, what is that? I'm like, I'll just do it. Yes, sir. I'll like, we'll write this up. <laughs> Anything else we can do, we'll do for you. So we're getting close to having to do this. I'll submit to whatever, how many chairs we can have, how much space we need off the aisles, like uh, how many handicapped parking spots we have for the amount of people. We submit to the government in that. Where I would say that we would push back is if the government said, hey, Gunnar, your Bible is really offensive. You're going to have to lay this down on the side. There's no more preaching out of the Bible because it's offensive. And at that point, I hope I've never been there. I've learned not to make claims that I can't. But I would hope that in that, in that circumstance, I would say, I'm sorry, but we will continue preaching the word. Well, we're going to have to take away your tax-exempt status. That's fine. I'm not preaching the word of God for a tax-exempt status. We don't tithe. We don't give our offering for the tax benefits of it. We do it because God wants us to contribute to the local church. It's great that we live in a country that has tax exemptions for charitable giving, but that's not why we give to the local church. There are pastors all around the world that are sitting in prison because they've rebelled against the government by preaching the word of God. And a day may come, but that's a line that we would kind of set up. But up to that, we, 
We as Christians want to be Christians that, that are known for submitting for the Lord's sake to the authorities that have been placed overhead. Why? Because God says it's his will. That should be enough for us. He says it's his will that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And, and not only does he tell us that it's his will, he explains sort of. He says, well, if you live this way, you're going to silence them. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says that you were bought at a price, that you were dead in your sin and transgression, and that when, you, when Christ died for you, you were purchased. So we were purchased for freedom's sake, and now we have freedom to submit to God and to follow after him and to do things his way. We have that freedom. We have that choice. Verse 17, I love my, the military side of me. I mean, I use this, and I'm like, oh, but it's totally, it would be using it. Because, like, the brotherhood, I come from a fraternal order that, like, is all about the brotherhood. And this just sounds cool. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I'm like, that's awesome. That's, it would be using it the wrong way. And I want to cover the ends, honor. Um, it's honor for all people, honor for the king. Let me go to my notes here. This, this, this honor to all people is the idea of respect, value, recognizing that all people who are not followers of Christ, Christ died for. That he, when he was on the cross, he died for them. He made payment for their sin. He wants them to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Like all people that we encounter. At the very end, same word to the king that our president of the United States, Christ, died for. When I've been looking at this passage, I've been terribly convicted this week because another area, if you turn there with me, is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Christians are not only committed to submit to the authorities that are over them. So 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're instructed to submit to them, but we're also instructed to pray for them. First of all, then I urge, there it is again, that word urge, pleading, that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Coming back to First Peter, this, this whole idea of praying and examining my heart and, and submitting, the big question that sort of keeps popping up in my mind, do I spend more time grumbling about the authorities over my head or do I spend more time praying for them? I'm not embarrassed to tell you that I spend more time grumbling about them. No, I am embarrassed to tell you, but I will tell you. Like, no, I, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm not, not so that I'm not embarrassed. I'm not I'm proud of it, but I'm just being transparent. And I've been terribly convicted that that's like, man, I, I complain and grumble. It may not even always be verbal. I might have the willpower not to like say stuff in public venues, but in my heart, there's grumbling. And I'm convicted that what I needed to be doing is to be praying it's clear that I no longer look at them as, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the last part. That when I came to Christ, I was asked to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. That I no longer view other people through my own eyes, through my own flesh. I look at them through the eyes of God, or I'm supposed to. That the people that we encounter, the authorities over us, these are people for whom Christ died then there's a difference from the brotherhood. Those people who have trusted in Christ, if you're a Christian, there is something distinctly special. I don't care what language you speak, what part of the world you live in. If you're a brother or sister of mine in Christ, I'm commanded to love, agape, committed, dedicated to one another. There's, some, there's, a, there's a brotherhood amongst believers a fellowship that you just can't experience in other circles. And that we're to fear God. 
which Ben covered a couple weeks ago, and th- so I'll skim over for time. But, but this idea that, we, that, that, that there's this reverence for God, our creator, the one whom died for us, the one who creates all things and holds all things together, that we could submit because of him. We're bowing down to him. We want to honor him. We have respect for him. He transitions from authority to a different type of authority. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. I love the disclaimer. It's like Peter speaking to children. Like he gets the whole gamut the, the, to remove the, well, that's only for good bosses. No, 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 no. Even for those that are being unreasonable. This word, servant, most of the times through the New Testament, the, the word servant or slave is the word doulos. This is a different word, which it doesn't really matter what it is, but, but it highlights the point that during this era, most people were slaves. Our background as Americans, we have a horrible history with slavery. This was, in some ways, it was sim- they had similar slavery, but they also had different slavery. Where, where this wasn't necessarily like slave labor type stuff. There were doctors who were slaves. There were every professional career. Most, most of the professionals in Rome were slaves. So, he's, so I don't think it's a stretch to say that when he's talking about servants and masters, he's, he's, he's moving forward into the realm that we could apply between employees and employers. So for those of you who work and are in the workplace, you're told to be submissive to your masters with all respect and not only to those who are good and gentle. Like we all love having a great boss. We love working for bosses that care for us. But then he goes on to say, but also to those who are unreasonable. They could do whatever they wanted, the bosses. to back. Like There was no OSHA. There was, not, there was nothing to protect you. And Peter says, no, you show respect even to the unreasonable boss. You serve him. You do all for the glory of God. You submit for the Lord's sake to your employer. Why? For this finds grace for the sake of conscience towards God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And it's this beautiful picture that you have this unreasonable boss and you're able to submit. You're not working to please him. You're working to please the creator. Now that song that we sang after the offering, um, which of course I'm blanking. See, it was in my original notes when I thought I was going this far, but I ditched the song. Um, When sea billows. It is well with my soul. It, it's it's not this it's it's not the same situation I'm talking about here. But there's something about how Stafford, Horatio Stafford, when he went through his great tragedy, when he lost everything, and that that old hymn that's so powerful, the thing that makes it powerful because it's the same truth. This whole theme of submission, where Peter's driving is if we don't place our faith in our, own, in our own strength, our own resilience, into politics, into our employment, but we place our trust and faith into the Creator, when we come to these situations, we're forced to just trust God. And here he says, For this finds grace for the sake of conscience towards God, that if a person bears up under sorrows, when suffering unjustly, in that song, when sorrows like sea billows, whatever, I've blanked it, but beautiful. I picture this man who's lost everything is able to pen one of the greatest songs in human history that the message is distinct from humanity in, in, in the way that we think because he knows Christ as his, his Savior. And if on that cross, everything was, all of his sins were nailed, then the situation that he's going through, he can have peace. And Peter's saying, if you can submit for the Lord's sake to whatever you're going through, it puts this, the grace of the gospel on display for all to see. 
He says, for what credit is there if when you sin or are harshly treated in the Greek, it's so much more grotesque. It's literally when you're like punched in the face. Like this is a beating. Like for what credit is there if when you sin harshly and are harshly treated and endure it with patience? I love how Peter's like, he's, li- he's like, we're not talking about your own stupidity getting you in trouble. Like, I've suffered plenty for my own sin, my own stupidity, my own ignorance, my own... That's not what he's talking about. This isn't that you rob a bank and you end up doing 10 years in prison. You're like, look how patient I am. I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not what he's talking about. He says, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it and this finds grace with God. That you're suffering, you're suffering. You don't have your attorney on speed dial, but your heart is that you're, Lord, I don't know what's going on here. This is hard. This is difficult. I'm trusting you. And you see that God's grace is sufficient. And then you reach the next step, which is Christian maturity to a level when you see it in other people. It is it's like stuff. It's like something you've never seen. Look at what it says. For you have been called for this very purpose. So imagine as a Christian, you've trusted in Christ. You've come to the place where you can trust God that he's sovereign over all, including the authorities, even that are not perfect over you. You submit and you seek him. You pray for your authorities over there. You trust him, even if you find yourself in prison for, for, for proclaiming Christ. You submit to your employer and you work well, even though he's beating you and making your life miserable because you trust in Christ. And instead of fighting back, you continue to endure it and trust him. And God's grace carries you. God's grace is displayed to those around you. And then you reach the point when you're suffering and you're able to say, God, I believe that you're refining me, that you have called me, that this suffering, this job that I'm miserable in, this government that I'm under, to think that you called me for this very purpose. And then he's going to pull the rug out from under us. And it gets worse. Because I know that we are great justifiers. And there's somebody in here that's saying, but what about you fill in the blank? You've been called for this very purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Hmm. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that although being God, he humbled himself and became a man, that he lived perfectly, that he, he died even on a cross in the most shameful, the most humiliating way, not because of anything that he's done. Since Christ also suffered for you, I'd encourage if you write in your Bible to, to circle the word for. See, because as we go on, He suffered for you, leaving an example to follow in his steps. It's not that Christ was just super tough and he could take take a beating and keep on ticking. You know, like that's that's not what that we as Christians are in our own good works. There are some religious groups that claim the banner of Christianity that that's sort of the message that they convey. Well, Christ suffered. That's our example. You just suffered. No, 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 no. See, Christ was the perfect lamb. He was God. He humbled himself. That's the example he set. His humility. See, when he took those beatings, when he was scourged, when he was reviled, all of this stuff, it wasn't because of anything he had done. It was because our sin required it if we were to have a relationship with God. So he suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. Well, Lord, we have a really bad government. They want to raise our taxes. Is that worse than dying on a cross for other people's sins? No. I had a boss that He makes me work 40 hours a week. Is that worse than dying for somebody else's sin? No. So Peter pulls everything away. This whole, you want to talk about submission that we're to follow? See, I I realized I was so messed up when I looked in the first service. I'm like, oh man, I didn't even put the verses that I was going to go. This was literally a tug of war. I looked up and I forgot I put that verse, Mark 10, 44 through 45. Jesus to his disciples, he says, for I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. 
talk about, this is a guy that submitted, if anyone didn't have to submit to anybody, because he's a creator and sustainer, we all will bow before him. And yet he humbled himself. And this is the example that we're to follow in his steps. Who committed no, no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting him. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I keep thinking about Peter. See, the man who wrote this was there, remember the night before, he said, Jesus, even if I die, I'll die with you. And Jesus sort of laughed at him and said, you're going to deny me three times before the sun even comes up. And that Peter followed a distance, watching Christ be crucified, executed, uh, the, the whole trial. To think how that sat with Peter for the rest of his life. Peter was a pretty proud, zealous businessman. He's a fisherman. There's a lot about Peter that I like. When I see Peter, I think of the guys that are on the deadliest catch in Alaska. Fishermen are some of the toughest guys. And yet at the end of his life, as he's pinning this to us, he's saying we're to submit. We're to follow Christ's example. While suffering, he uttered no threats, didn't talk about his rights, didn't call his attorney, but he kept entrusting himself to to him who judges righteously. And I think this is the key of this section because a true submitted spirit to God through all of these circumstances, it removes our ability to fight back. It removes our ability to complain and it drives us submission to our creator. That while suffering, he uttered no threats. As Jesus was carrying the cross down the the road to, the, to, Golgotha, to Golgotha, Peter, when looking back, says he kept entrusting himself to him, the Father who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. In the Greek, when Peter wrote this, it's even, the the wounds there, it's singular. It literally could read welt. And I don't know what Peter saw. If you've ever seen a person die, there are images that never, ever, ever, ever go away. Peter was there. And I don't know if there was like a catastrophic blow or a welt or something that just, sat with Peter that he would write so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wound, by his welt, you were healed. Like that there was something that maybe a strike hit as Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said that over and over and over again. But Peter's life was changed and he's encouraging us live to righteousness, not to sin. For you were continually straying like sheep, amen? But now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, this whole purpose isn't to, 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 that you would live rightly so that you could, when, when you die, that you've done more good than bad. The whole idea here is that Jesus died for you. That's the gospel, that Jesus loved you. You're a sinner. You were born into sin. He planned a way that he could restore relationship with you. It required a sacrifice because God is holy. And so God became man, lived the perfect life, went as a lamb to the slaughter as the ultimate sacrifice for you. All he wants is to give you a gift. It's life. It's salvation. And for those of us who have received Christ as Savior... He paid it all, all to him we owe. How we, we have to wake up and realize that the Christian life, it isn't about you. It's a big day in your life when you come to realize that the world doesn't spin around you. I am a stubborn, selfish. My wife could probably continue a whole lot better than I could. <laughs> 
I'm hard-headed. And, and to come to the place to realize that this whole Christian life isn't about me. That Christ, I was, I was saved by him and I entered a team, something that was bigger. It's not about my little world. My suffering is a part of, of a bigger plan. And the reality is, is when I look at the world, I don't have suffering. I have, we Americans, we don't have suffering. I'll never forget that pastor from Africa that said, stop praying that we wouldn't face persecution. We're praying that you guys would experience persecution because there's nothing that brings your faith alive like true persecution. I'm like, stop praying that. I don't like that. God wants our hearts. He wants us to understand how big he is. He's sovereign. He's in control. There's no problem that you're going through that isn't, that he can't handle. And so, Father, we thank you that you are great, you are big, you are sovereign, you are mighty, you are holy, you are just. Father, I pray for those, Lord, who hear these words and they don't know you, Savior. Father, I pray that the words would be clear that salvation is not based on works. There is nothing that we could do to earn our salvation. We thank you that salvation is totally and completely based upon the work of Christ on the cross. And it's simply believing, trusting, hoping in him. We thank you for the assurance that we have for the sealing of the spirit. Father, we pray for those of us, Lord, all of us in this room who know Christ as Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, um, to really examine ourselves. Our pridefulness, our zeal, our self-reliance, our d- desire for retribution and evening the score. And Father, I pray that you would help us to just bow down before you and to trust you. Lord, we thank you that we can trust that when all is said and done, the score will be evil, evened. That sin will be accounted for. And Lord, all we can do is thank you that you had mercy on us. Father, we pray that you would give us true hearts that reflect your love, your mercy, your graciousness. We pray that you would help us to be convicted, to pray for the authorities that are over us, to pray, pray for our employers. Lord, we pray that our lives would display the gospel clearly. We thank you that it's not based upon our good works, but we thank you, Lord, that you use us. I don't know how you do it, but you do. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We thank you that our hope is in you alone. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.